Hello, Dennis. Hello, Jesse. We have big news today. Big news? Absolutely. We have the launch of our brand new online program. Yes, starring... Dennis. Me. And Chris. Oh, well, yeah. Chris does one too. <laughs> so two different courses. Two different courses. Yours is an introduction. introduction to the 20th century documents on liturgical music. So if you don't know what liturgical music is supposed to be, mm-hmm. go watch that. Absolutely. And then there's Chris's, which is an introduction to the sacred liturgy. Both of those are available. The, the courses are 249, but... Five full hours. Five full hours goodness. of liturgy goodness. And you can get it all for half off each course until February 2nd. You use the coupon half off one word and you go to www.liturgy.online. You can get both of those courses. We're going to be filming a few new ones coming up in February and March. Sacramental Aesthetics will be one. And Liturgical Movement. Talking about beauty, baby. And on February 9th, we'll be filming an introduction to Sacraments with Chris. So tons of more content to come. But these two courses, uh, Dennis's course and Chris's course, are available right now Now, for half off. Now, half off, right now. Until February 2nd, use the coupon half off. And this week, we are diving back into Sacrosanctum Concilium. Oh, it's like a warm bath. Yeah, it's like where we belong. We've been talking theory, 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 but this time we're talking about how this goes out into pastoral liturgical action. In other words, how does it actually hit the ground in your parish or diocese according to Vatican II, chapters 41 through 42. Six. So without further ado, episode 16 Wait, of can season we have, 3. Can we have some further ado? No, I oh, no okay. further ado. Right, I told you no further without ado. Without further ado. Episode 16 of season 3 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. We are still talking about Sacrosanctum Concilium. And we will never stop. Do you think anybody's listening, though? They, we told you, Chris. We talked to many people at the C-Conference. Like, oh, thank many you so people. much. Yes, like Both of them five. said that they liked it. <laughs> <Gosh>. <laughs> Anyone who's not fascinated by the most important document about the life of the church in the 20th and 21st century has got a problem. That's what I say. He always says that. He, that's he, like, he's, he's always saying, saying that. Yeah, that's how I he know. answers his phone when somebody calls <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. Well, so, we, we, maybe yeah. we'll take a break and talk about something else one of these weeks. Just for a couple not of now. Weeks. Yeah. About how people interpret science. But you know what we want to do? We've, we've been talking all these weeks about the nature of the liturgy, what it's about, what you can do, what you can't do. You know, that Rome is in charge of things, the Holy See has the final authority. And then finally, in chapter 41? 41. Paragraph 41. Paragraph 41 of chapter 4. This little inversion there. The one, fourth chapter. 1441. Finally, they talk about bringing this out into the diocese and the parish. All right. Yeah. Chris does that as Dallas and Worship Office for the best blankety-blank diocese in the U.S. It's a good diocese. It's Across a very good Wisconsin. diocese. Very good bishop. Yeah, and it's good to, you know, so what I do, people ask, Chris, what do you do? Yeah, what, what would you, you say do? you do? <laughs> what would you say you do here? Uh, my job description is based upon what the bishop does. 
And so paragraph 41 especially should be of interest to me because uh, I, the bishop is the, uh, what does it say? Consider the high priest of the flock from whom the life of, the, of Christ of the faithful in some way is derived and dependent. So what the bishop does is uh, what I do. I help the bishop to do his job. He is the diocesan liturgist, bishop, my Bishop Callahan. As the, the doer of liturgy, right? Most people think liturgist means the studiers of liturgy, but the one who does the liturgy is the liturgist. So he's in charge. He's the primary he's a liturgist doer. maximus. Yeah, well, if you think about that, of the diocese. Um, that's good. That's good, Jesse. I've talked about this before, but I'm, I'm newly fascinated by this whole concept that you're the head of your own body, right? Mm-hmm. Then you are the head, perhaps, of your family. Mm-hmm. And then the pastor is the head of your parish, and the bishop is the head of the diocese, and then the pope is the head of the entire church. Well, don't get ahead of yourself. Well, you can. You have to have the head in the right place. But mm-hmm. we have all these units that work all the way down and all the way up at the same time. So when the bishop is called the high priest of his flock... In other words, he's the head of that diocesan entity of that part of the church, what they call the local church since Vatican II, um, that he's, he's the head, right? He's the principal liturgist. Of Am the I the high priest of my flock? You were you the, the pope of your domestic church. Yes. Well, you and uh, Kim have to work that out, who's really the head of the family. But this, I read this somewhere, but I can't remember where. Uh, you know the, the term uh, par excellence or par excellentium that's yes. sometimes used People in People seem the, to say that about you all the time. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've heard that. Uh, it's that's u- when you wait, have like wait, a no, really wait, good... What is it usually said about? <laughs> no joke for Jesse. Keep going, Chris. <laughs> I didn't even hear you. What, uh, when you <laughs> read that in a document, one. when you read that in the document, it's usually referring to the Blessed Sacrament. Right, right? the so presence G- of Christ par excellence. Right, right. I think it's even... Must be in this document somewhere, Sacrosanctum Concilium. Jesus is present in the minister. He's present when the word is proclaimed. He's present when the people gather, but he's present par excellence in the Blessed Sacrament. Well, it's, I don't know, maybe it's interesting, maybe it's nerdy, maybe it's irrelevant, but I think uh, the bishop himself is called the high priest par excellence in one of the documents. And if, if we bear in mind how it's usually used, this term, it should really put um, like some substance into who the bishop is, is that, you know, the fullness of Christ's high priesthood is abiding in, uh, in the bishop. And what does it mean to be a high priest? That's an old Jewish temple term, right? That yeah. the high priest was sort of the head of this body of priests. There were other priests in the temple, and they only went into the, the first room of the temple. But the high priest was the only one who went into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies and brought the prayers and petitions of Israel. And Christ is the true high priest, right, who really went to the presence of God with the prayers and petitions of uh, the people, all the people yeah, of the world. Yeah. So now the bishop is doing what Christ does in his diocese. Sounds like a bunch yeah. of nesting dolls. So there's some cool liturgical things that the bishop, that, that's present at a bishop's mass to help sacramentalize the fact that he's the high priest. So for example... Seventh candle. The seven candles, right? Because uh, when you look to the high priest in the book of Revelation, he's surrounded by seven candles. Well, if the bishop is his sacrament in the liturgical assembly, how can we uh, make that legible? Well, we'll put seven, we'll surround him with seven candles. Uh, Not because he's all that great a guy, although hopefully he is, but because he's sacramental. Because the sacramental reality is Christ the high priest. So this is why he doesn't walk around to his office everywhere with seven candles around him, only in his liturgical function. This is a mini mini question, though. If it's a ferial day, is it still seven candles for him, or is it, how does that work? So 
even just an ordinary time, ferial day, he's celebrating mass. He can, he can. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he also uses, uh, he's, he, only the bishop can use in, uh, in the rites today, the greeting, the Lord be with you, right? So the priest uses... Uh, peace uh, be with you. Peace be with you, that's yeah. right. Uh, but the bishop uses the words that came right from Christ's own lips. And so he uses the shepherd's staff, Christ is uh, the, the And he the sits during a lot of things where priests have to stand, right? Like uh, he, he, he does. can he, sit he, when he, he puts can, incense yeah. in the censer. He the can parable. preach while seated. The the uh, the priest doesn't Ex do cathedre. that. Yeah, exactly. Because he has the authority that is symbolized by the chair, where a priest does not sit while putting. Um, Sounds like a incense. lot of benefits to being a bishop. Oh, well, there's some drawbacks. Yeah, a whole lot of drawbacks too. But that's what it's saying. The bishop is to be considered the high priest of his flock. So what is he's under his care? He maintains their life in Christ. So the, the flock in a sense, depends on the shepherd to get them where they need to be and safely and feed them and all of that stuff and call them by his voice. This, uh, still in paragraph 41, I think is a very important one. So let's just look at it. All should hold in great esteem the liturgical life of the diocese centered around the bishop, especially in his cathedral church. Mm-hmm. They should be convinced that the preeminent manifestation of the church consists in the full active participation of all God's holy people in these liturgical celebrations, especially in the same Eucharist, at a single prayer, at one altar, at which there presides the bishop surrounded by his college of priests and by his ministers. So subsequently, the, the cathedral parish should be the par excellence of, exactly. of liturgical right. celebrations. No, I think it's so. very important. The preeminent manifestation of the church. If the you want to see what the church is in her ontological uh, reality, okay? then you go to see the bishop at his cathedral at the altar where he has his concelebrating priests, his assisting deacons, his other ministers, and the laity actively participation. That is the clearest picture of the church this side of heaven. So imagine you're alone in the parish on a weekday afternoon and you're doing your private devotions. You're just like a toe, right? Here I am. I'm the toe of the <laughs> mystical body all alone, right? So you just took the toe off Michelangelo's David and there it is. But then you get more people, you start to become the foot, the ankle, and then you have mass and everybody's assembled and you start to see the, the full fullness of that local body. And then you get all the priests of the diocese, all the people of the diocese, assemble them under the bishop. And then you start to see this more full reality of the mystical body of Christ, which is this continuing action of Christ in the world. So just like the bishop is the priest par excellence of his diocese, the cathedral is the head of this body of church buildings, right, in the diocese. So it should be the biggest should have the, the most perfect celebration of liturgy and the most perfect sort of cultural center for all the, the diocese. So it has this role liturgically that's particularly important. It's right here in Vatican II. There's a good, uh, now this is real liturgy nerd stuff. It's probably right. come up before. I love it. Are you ready, liturgy nerds? Let's uh, see. In the, in the ordination rites, did I bring this up before? Probably. I'm kind of a one-trick For priest or bishop? Exactly. Oh. So the first edition was the uh, rites of ordination for deacons, priests, and bishops. And the second version has the title, The Rite of Ordination for a Bishop, Priests, and Deacons. What's the difference? So it went from the Rite of Ordination from Deacons, Priests, and Bishops to the Rite of Ordination to a Bishop, Priests, and Deacons. Put the Bishop first. Okay, so one, you put the Bishop first at the center, and there's only one Bishop, right? So, and the second is kind of a, just even in its title, I think, is kind of a summary of this paragraph 41, that in the center you have the bishop, and then kind of like concentric rings or nesting dolls, as you put it, uh, everything is radiating out just from, uh, just as just as it does from Christ, actually. I find it interesting, your uh, translation is a little different from mine, but it, yeah. it says, uh, 
all should hold in esteem the bishop, let them be persuaded that the church itself reveals herself most clearly. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. it seems like people aren't persuaded of this and it's like, <laughs> go make a difference, right? Go let people be persuaded of this reality that we're What about um, auxiliary bishops? Because that would not be bishop of that because diocese. Because it's not the ordinary, so. Yeah, well, there's some. The ordinary of somewhere else. They are. So have you ever oh, heard yeah, of, everybody right. has a, what do they call it, a, a title or titular, so. I forgot about that. Right. Because a, a diocese can only have one bishop, just like a bride can only have one groom. Oh, got it. Okay. So it's a little bit of, what would you say, legalese, I guess. Loophole, so, that's what I call it. Well, they're trying to make theological, I mean, there's a theology of the, uh, of the bishop uh, with his church, and so they're, they're, they're trying to make sense, they're trying to be faithful to that theology with these titular sees that well, don't you, exist anymore. You mentioned this with Bishop Barron that Cardinal George said, you know, Chicago may not be a diocese sometime. Right. You know. So there used to be all these dioceses in North Africa, right? Libya and other places that there are no Christians there anymore. And so there's, there is a diocese, but there's, there's no need for a bishop there because there's no Christians. So they make you the bishop of whatever in North Africa. And then they say, well, since we don't need you there, come to Chicago and do lots of confirmations, right? <laughs> so it is a practical need that is solved, but it, you have to be a bishop of a place. But it all makes sense, yeah. you know? If your bride's not there, you go and be a groom to somebody else. So I, don't, I don't know that that's a good metaphor, but... <laughs> Maybe this would be a good transition to 42. I don't know the answer to this, but, you know, on the stairs, we've talked about it uh, over at the main chapel, right? So you have these... At Mundelein Seminary. At Mundelein Seminary. So you have uh, the suborders, uh, the... Porter Ec- and exorcist, subdeacon. Uh, well, then you've got lector. Uh, lector acolyte, and then you've got subdeacon, deacon, and priest. Super deacon. Oh, sorry. Okay, so but where? What's what's? What would you expect to see? Bishop. Bishop. There's no. There's no bishop there. Mm. So I mean, there there seems to be a shift in. Uh, but that's not a diocesan parish, though. It's a seminary. So how would nah, that? No, that that wouldn't have anything. Okay. Uh, uh, any bearing on it? Uh, I mean, now the three orders are bishop, priest, and deacon. Versus, say, priest, deacon, subdeacon. So there's a, there's a shift with, uh, I think, the, the theology of the episcopacy with the Second Vatican right. Council. And the next paragraph kind of puts it in line because we think, oh, we have a bunch of priests. Oh, yeah, and there's that bishop too. When it really should be the other way around. The bishop has the fullness of priesthood, but there's only one of him. And so in the next paragraph, it says, it's impossible for the bishop always and everywhere to preside over the whole flock. He establishes uh, uh, lesser groupings of the faithful, and this would be parishes. And then, then priests are set over those. So priests share. But, but no, the, no. But li- listen to the. I don't know how your translation reads. Um, among these parishes, set up locally under a pastor who takes the place of a bishop. Exactly. I mean, we don't think of it that way either. Right? So who's who's your pastor, Jesse? Who's your pastor? Cardinal right. Supich. No. Yeah. Well, okay. I yeah. think that's what it's saying. But since Cardinal Supich can't come to your parish every Sunday, he has to. He has to set up you and others as a lesser grouping of the faithful and uh, oh, I'm, appoint, in the, I'm in the lesser group and point appoint a pastor to take his place but it, there's a real strong emphasis on uh, the centrality of the bishop right so it's it's the sharing in the work and ministry of the bishop who has the fullness of, of priestly identity that's why the, a bishop can consecrate a pri- uh, can ordain a priest but a priest can't ordain a priest uh, a bishop can consecrate a bishop but the priests can't consecrate a bishop because they have the fullness of that authority and then certain aspects of that is shared with your parish priest. Hmm. And that's a rethinking of things, I think, as the 20th century understood what's, what is the nature of a bishop. All right. 
Okay, so therefore, and it keeps going there, yeah. the, life of the liturgical life of the parish and its relationship to the bishop must be fostered in clergy and laity, above all in the common uh, celebration of the Sunday Mass. So theoretically, your cathedral should set the ideal perfect liturgy. It should be the ideal perfect architecture, preaching, everything. And that becomes the model that every other Sunday Mass in the diocese should try to strive for according to its means. Yeah, what this reminds me of is uh, the rite of election. Have either of you been to a rite of election before? No. Uh, this, take, this takes place on the first Sunday of uh, Lent every year. Oh, and for RCIA? For RCIA. Oh, okay. And it's, uh, it's one of the uh, coolest, best liturgies you can attend. Uh, because it's people who are coming, you know, so they're studying at uh, St. Mary's Parish over here, St. John's Parish over there. And this may be like the first time that they come to their future parish. And it's uh, what, what I find interesting about this, uh, at least in lacrosse, is uh, so let's say the ride is at two o'clock. People are showing up before noon because they're so interested in this parish that this is going to be their parish. And I mean, most of the time you go to the theater and people come in, they plop down, they wait for it to start. And people are walking all over the place. They're like opening the confessional doors and they're going to look in the baptistry. They want to see what's in the uh, sacristy and the rest. They're just fascinated by this church that's uh, about to be theirs and this, this pastor who's about to be their pastor as well. So anyway, when you were talking about that uh, connection with the bishop and his cathedral, uh, you can really see that uh, tangibly at the rite of election. So. And it kind of goes the other way, too. Maybe your local parish is not that hot architecturally, but then you go downtown to the cathedral and you see this beautiful fullness of church architecture. Uh, might be an older building or a grander building or something like that. You say, oh, yeah, here's the fullness that I'm supposed to have. Maybe I don't have it, but at least I know where what my norm, my standard is. Well, that, that could be something for another podcast, too. It says uh, somewhere else that the cathedral liturgy is supposed to be the model for all other liturgies in the parish. Well, what does that mean and what does it not mean? I mean, my local parish is supposed to be on the same grand scale as the cathedral. We have the same music program. We have all these other things. Does it mean that? If not, what does it? Um, so anyway, again, just the primacy of the bishop and the cathedral. Mm-hmm. It's like having the National Gallery of Art and then having a local art gallery in your little town. It's probably not going to have the Michelangelo masterpieces, but it'll have whatever you can But it do. might have the toe from the Michelangelo. It might just have the toe, right? Not the fullness <laughs> of the thing. So it continues along about the promotion of this pastoral liturgical action. It's, the, the document starts to get a little wonky at this point. It's like, well, what do you do now that we talked about this? I mean, the first paragraph, 43, is saying the zeal for this promotion and restoration of the liturgy is a sign of... Chris, the pro- mine says providential dispositions of God in our time is a movement of the Holy Spirit in his church. So mine says exactly. Exactly, okay. Yeah. And it's a distinguishing mark of the church's life that the whole tenor of contemporary religious thought and action. So they're really kind of aware, or at least they're conceiving this as God and his Holy Spirit is acting in time in this really providential way that the renewal of the liturgy and the revision of the liturgy would bring forth all this great fruit. And then it wasn't just an accident that a bunch of you know, progressive-minded bishops decided to do something. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit and guided by the Holy Spirit. So then they give some kind of specific recommendations. What do they say there, Chris? Goff? That uh, the uh, bishop is to set up a liturgical commission. That Boring. is, what does it say? Yeah. Um with uh, experts in liturgical science. You know, is that what you're saying? Mine says liturgical science, too. Can you get a degree in liturgical science? I don't know, but... uh... Liturgical science, sacred music, art, and pastoral practice. But, um, you know, the the code will call for uh, diocesan pastoral councils and 
diocesan uh, finance councils. But I think that this is the, from all the Second Vatican Council, if I'm correct, this is the only, and in some places we'll have uh, justice and peace uh, committees, education councils and whatnot. But this is actually, I guess you'd call this a mandate or directed by the council that every diocese is uh, supposed to have a liturgical commission. Well, it says commission. it is desirable. So I guess it's not a mandate. It's just a best it's a practices desire. kind of thing. So, um, but it should be aided by some kind of institute. <coughs> oh, Chris. That was Jesse. Oh, Chris, Jesse. Come on, what? Jesse. <laughs> All right, start, let's start over. Start over? Yeah. No, I got to leave. Okay. Oh. What, how are these competent uh, parish, no, what are we talking about? Commissions. How are they going to operate? There's going to be an institute for pastoral liturgy, it says, which is interesting. You know, that was a common phrase in the 70s and 80s, pastoral liturgy. In other words, that this liturgical knowledge would get out to the parishes. And it should be consisting of persons who are eminent in these matters, including laymen. Chris, hmm. Jesse. There's a few laymen in this room right yeah, now. A few lame, lame. lame men in this room. <laughs> um, hey, that was good. Hey, thanks. Chris beat me to it, though. And um, every diocese has to, com- to have a commission on sacred liturgy under the, dio- the direction of the bishop. Most, would you say most dioceses, big dioceses have these for sure. A lot of little dioceses don't. Every now and then we get a student at the liturgical institute who will say, oh, my bishop really wants to finally start a liturgical commission mm. for the diocese and he mm-hmm. needs somebody to head it. So he sent me here uh, to study. And that they should have commissions for sacred music and art. And uh, the few, it says sometimes you can fuse these into one single commission. You know, commissions are always good, only as good as the people who are on them. So sometimes commissions have bad reputations for being sort of totalitarian, ignorant totalitarian <laughs> people Some, who sometimes. thwart the process of sometimes. liturgical uh, development. Other times they can be quite excellent if they, uh, if they work well. Uh, Chris, are you the liturgical commissioner of your diocese? No, the bishop oh, is the liturgical the, 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 commissioner. The, the, the commission. Yeah, well, under the bishop, uh, and, and since I uh, help You're him in that You're supposed to be regard, doing what the bishop's yes, doing. Yes, yeah. So that I would uh, uh, direct the liturgical uh, commission for the diocese. All right. Under the authority of the bishop. Bishop. Who is under the authority of? Jesus Christ. Who is under the authority? No. <laughs> That's your nesting <laughs> Well, dumb. you know, that is a common mistake a lot of people make, that, especially now with you know the lawsuits and sexual abuse going on. People say, oh, the Pope should just fire all the bishops. Well, the Pope doesn't have the authority to fire bishops. They, they can remove them under very uh, limited circumstances, but the bishops are su- uh, successors of the apostles. They're not delegates of the Pope. So it's really important to remember that each, each diocese has its own authority as the successor of, of an apostle. And so they that have... That is something I did not know. Yeah, they have a lot of authority. They are in charge of being Jesus Christ for everybody in their diocese, not just the Catholics, but everyone. And the pastor is in charge of being Jesus Christ for everyone in the parish, geographical parish, not just the ones who come to Mass. Not the ex-Catholics. That is a lot of responsibility. Governing, <laughs> teaching, and sanctifying. That's a huge responsibility. And so the, the, this kind of reclaiming of the 20th century is to say this is the essential job of the bishop, and then the bishop will act in his parishes and through these commissions. And the idea was to take all these riches of the liturgical movement and push them out into the life of regular, ordinary Catholics. All right. Into the toe, from the head to the toes. From head to toe. Jesse. Yes. Can we answer a liturgical question? Oh, please, 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 please. Yes, okay, one yes. liturgy question. Oh, thank God. So you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here, but you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it? Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. 
uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning. I've known, we've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? You can ring my bell. Ring my bell. My bell. Ding-a-ding-a-ding-a-ding. Ding dong. All right, here we are. Speaking of ding dongs. <laughs> ding dong. <laughs> oh, it's man. ring ding, by the way. Is it? Yeah. Ring ding. The, the little dessert is ring ding. All right, so <laughs> Liam, this is your uh, second first question. Two for one. Uh, he says, my parish priest told me that I shouldn't ring the bells three times for the consecration and that it's got to be done, quote unquote, quietly. He said that Vatican II taught this. Is he correct? Well, is the question here ringing it three times or ringing it at all? It sounds like the three times is the issue and that it should be quiet. Yeah, if it's, if it's done, it should be done quietly or basically reserving the, the sacredness of what's happening in the liturgy. Why do he, people hate bells, Chris? There are people who hate the Wait, ringing Wait, is that why bells. you started this with that song? Oh my goodness, I just picked up on wow. that. Wow, Jesse is <laughs> S-L-O Firing all cylinders today. today. Slow gin fizz, all right. I mean, what's the issue with the bell? What, the, the liturgical claim is that bells were added to the elevation, to the consecration because? Oh, because people didn't know when it was happening. Right, if in the Middle Ages, if mass was in Latin, and there was, it was the low mass, and maybe the priest was behind a screen or something, then people didn't know when the consecration was happening, so they were doing something else, and then you'd have to be like, hey, wake up, we're about to do something important, everybody look up here, because there's a bell. It's well, but either way, so an extraordinary form, bells are rung all the time to signal to the people when this is gonna start, and that's right. gonna start. And whether or, not sure. it's, whether or not it started out of a practical necessity, came into the 20th century where everybody could see it and hear it. And, you know, we're all fallen people and we're prone to distraction. And a, a, occasionally a bell calling you to intention is pretty well, good. Jesse can attest to this too, probably. If you have kids, you know, they're one or two or three, all of it, you know, and they're goofing around in mass and the bell rings, what do they do? They yeah. start to pay attention. They'll look around and see what's going on. I mean, it, it, it works. I told that to Agnes and then she said real, real loud. She goes, Daddy, I heard the bells. <laughs> And I was like, oh, I think that's the opposite of what I wanted to have. But you can imagine, hopefully, a well-meaning liturgist would say, well, you know, the bell, it's kind of outlived its usefulness. It was there centuries ago when people were doing something else. But now we see and follow in our own language, so we don't need bells anymore. And so people would sort of say, well, that's hey, a Everybody's weird, paying attention now. That's a weird accretion that we can get rid of. <laughs> and since everybody's paying attention now. So <laughs> what do you say to this, Chris? Well, what doesn't matter what I say. Well, I w- what does the church say? I care what you say because you're a smart, informed uh, well, person. Well, informed by uh, uh, by the uh, general instruction of the Roman Missal. Yeah, number uh, one fifty. Yes, one five zero. A little before the consecration, if appropriate, a minister rings a small bell as a signal to the faithful. The minister also rings the small bell at each elevation by the priest, according to local custom. Hmm. Well. That allows for all kinds of possibilities. Does it say it may be or must be? It says, it says if appropriate. When appropriate. Well, how do you know if it's appropriate? But well, I suppose, it, doesn't it say according to the... Local custom? Yeah. 
But it shouldn't be like a fanfare type of bells where we're like. Well, it's meant to be a signal. Right. As it says, it's a signal to the people. But it says small. So that indicates that it's supposed to be kind of a. I think that might be distinguishing it from the big bells in the church tower or something like that. So a little bell would be the kind of bells people ring at the mass these days. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty much answers the question that it may happen. It not is not required to happen, mm-hmm. but it's clearly in the rubrics that it's. Yeah, well, it's certainly not in, in Vatican II. I mean, it's in, it's in the the, the Roman Missal uh, revised sure. according to Vatican II. Right. Let me point out one other thing that may or may not uh, probably won't answer the question. I will edit this it is, out. Somebody there. observed this, uh, uh, made this observation. It really escalates this Monsignor uh, Mark Karen, who teaches. Or no, he's a student at the Liturgical Institute. But he also teaches at St. John Seminary okay. in Boston. And he, he's writing a series called Liturgical Traditions for Adoramus Bulletin based on this paragraph. It's at number 42, which is speaking, truly, it's speaking about gestures and postures. But what it says here is that um, attention must therefore be paid to what is determined by this general instruction and by the traditional practice of the Roman rite. Hmm. And so, I mean, there, there's always been this question about, well, how do you relate what went before the council to what went after the council? And are they, uh, I mean... But does that mean you then keep your thumb and forefinger together? Or does that mean you make little multiple signs of the cross with the hose? I mean, there are lots of things in the venerable right. tradition that are gone, right? Uh, right, yeah. And so, I don't, like I said, I don't know if that helps answer things or not answer things. But if in the uh, traditional practice of the Roman rite, a bell was rung, say, three times, I'm sorry, I don't know if that's, I think that must have been the practice, then it's not inconceivable, which is to say it's conceivable, that uh, the bell could even be rung uh, three times if, uh, if you would read this uh, number 42 along with number one. And then three more angels get their wings and everybody's happy. <laughs> that was my joke. But no, well, I beat you this to is it. similar to the confidier where it says, you know, through my fault, my fault, mm-hmm. my most grievous. Well, everybody just pounds their chest three times, but it doesn't say three times it just says they strike their breasts that's it yeah in fact there was even a clarification this was from the bishop's committee so i don't know how uh, no offense to the people at the bishop's committee how authoritative this was uh but they once upon a time maybe 40 years ago when the missile was just revised says no no just strike it once um but i don't i don't know especially now i mean we only said through my fault once we say once yeah but now we say it three times so you know uh, thinking Symbolically and sacramentally, well, what would be an appropriate symbolic gesture to accompany the words, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault? Well, it's not inconceivable, which is to say it's conceivable, conceivable. that uh, you could do it three times. Were we supposed to do it once before the new translation in 2000? That's what the clarification from the bishop's oh. committee said was only once. But you My only said it in once. parishes. Most people don't even do it now. So, oh really? If they're if you're out there, and you're, you teach your people that. And the other thing that I and want another more, thing, another thing I want more people to do is bow during the creed. I don't see people really yeah. doing that either. It's right there in the book. Yeah. Did you genuflect at Christmas? Um, what what? The Christmas mass during the creed. Did you genuflect instead of? Oh just yeah, bow? we did. did yes, they didn't where I was. Really? But you know, there's this larger question of what we could call artifacts. So when something be starts, usually it's for a practical reason. So it's good to praise the Lord. It's good to uh, add the maniple, which is like the napkin on the wrist of the priest. And people would say, well, it's because the priest needed it to wipe his eyes. And then it became, oh, he was, it was to catch his tears because he was, you know, knowing the immensity of the mass. People would say, well, that's just some kind of romantic overlay. But 
lots of things in the liturgy become impractical after a while, but they stay in. And so I remember Fulton Sheen gave a talk about this when he's talking about the maniple and he said, well, they don't really use it anymore, but it makes the time they did use it 500 years ago, part of our time. It brings the past and makes it real in our time. So it's like an anamnesis. Well, it's not quite anamnetic in, in making real, but it makes it noble. I mean, it, it comes forward. So when you go to some amusement park and you know somebody's dressed up like George Washington, they're wearing the old colonial uniform, you know that that's not the army uniform of today, but it brings knowledge of our own past to our uh, existence. So artifacts can sometimes stay and often do stay in the liturgy, even when they've lost their practical function. So reform can sometimes be a little too zealous and say, well, it's no longer practical, practical to get rid of it. You have to be very careful about making those kind of adjustments. Hmm. All right, I got Liam. Another, I got a hmm from Chris. Yeah, again. Yep. Yep. I like that analogy. Thank All right, you. Liam, I hope that we answered your question to your expectations. And if not, sorry. But uh, Send letters to Chris. <laughs> send letters to Chris. Um, Chris has already put down his headphones, <laughs> and he's, he's halfway a, out the door. Here, come. Oh, he just left. I don't know. Okay. And then you hear the plane flying. <laughs> All right. Thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.